Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. John Lamont on the topic, The Justice of Hell. This October 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Lamont has been a Senior Lecturer at the University of Notre Dame, Australia, and has studied philosophy, economics, and sacred theology at prominent universities around the world. Okay, uh, Hello, Belloc once remarked that one of the pleasures of heaven will be throwing rocks at the damned. Uh, this sort of outlook isn't very popular nowadays. I was prompted to start thinking about hell by listening, by going to the Australasian Association of Philosophy conference the year before last in Canberra, and um, here we talk by Stephanie Lewis. Stephanie Lewis, the philosopher herself, is the widow of David Lewis, who was pretty much the most um, eminent English-speaking philosophy revision until his philosopher, philosopher period until his untimely death a few years ago, American who's very attached to Australia and came down here, came down here quite often. So David Lewis, very important figure in the philosophy world, um, didn't do much work in the philosophy religion, more metaphysics. But uh, and I'm believer, he corresponded quite a bit with believing philosophers. So his widow Stephanie was talking about was talking about. Um, was talking about what he had to say about the philosophy of religion in his correspondence with important sort of philosophers, Christian philosophers of religion like Alvin Pinego or Richard Swinburne. And so David Lewis, in correspondence with these Christian philosophers, had raised the issue of hell and charged that the doctrine made the Christian God a monstrously evil being. So I was listening to the talk, and in the question period after the talk, I offered a defense of the doctrine. And Stephanie Lewis, who's a very kind and uh, decent person, was too shocked for to reply. And the unbelieving friend who was sitting next to me rushed off after the talk without speaking or looking at me. So what I'm going to do tonight is try to elaborate on this defense a bit further that I offered in this, uh, to this audience of unbelieving philosophers about why hell actually is uh, quite a reasonable thing to happen. Um, it, the defense gets, uh, goes through a bit, involves some philosophical issues and gets sort of a bit further and further into philosophy. Uh, but I think even if the further slopes end up being a bit, being a bit involved, the, the earlier ones will be hopefully sort of accessible and of interest to, to everyone. Um, so David Lewis's objection is that hell involves inflicting an infinite punishment on people who, of necessity, as finite beings, can only commit finite crimes, and hence is the most monstrous injustice conceivable. This is an obvious objection, and uh, not surprisingly has been considered by previous thinkers, including, say, Thomas. It became a topic of debates, explicit topic of debates, uh, quite early on in the Christian theology in the third century, with origin the great Origin, the sort of great early Greek father of the church from Alexandria, proposed that um, eventually everyone in hell, including the devil, will repent and go to heaven. So, Origin's views ended up being condemned by the church, but even before they were condemned by the church, 
they're pretty generally rejected as being incompatible with the scriptures, which contain a number of quite clear threats of unending punishment for sinners, most of whom are uttered by Christ himself. So, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41, is a typical one. And it's interesting, when you look at the development of the doctrine of hell, there's not a lot in the Old Testament. Originally in the Old Testament, what's described as being the fate of people after death is just shit-old, right, just the underworld. There's no real distinction between, there's sort of no real distinction between what happens to the good and the bad after death. That distinction only really starts to come in with the notion of the resurrection. So you have the resurrection, you have the idea that there's going to be a resurrection where people like the Maccabean martyrs who have died for the name of God are going to be restored to life to be, are going to be restored to life to be rewarded for their good deeds. So, there's not much in the Old Testament about sort of hell itself. It's only really in the New Testament, and probably only with our Lord himself, that the idea really becomes clearly formulated. I think, perhaps it was C.S. Lewis who pointed out that really it's Christ who starts clearly elaborating the notion of hell and saying, if, and saying that people who sin and don't repent are going to be punished in eternal thought. So, I mean, which is an interesting, gives an interesting insight into the usual idea of caricature of how you have the judgmental, the judgmental God of the Old Testament, and you have the nice God of the New Testament with Christ. In fact, it's not like that. Christ brings both extremes. He brings the great extreme of love, the great extreme of forgiveness, the great extreme of mercy, but he also brings the, uh, the great extreme of God's judgment on the people who don't assent to this love or accept this mercy. So, um, this means that, uh, so we see quite clearly in the, in the New Testament the idea from Christ himself that there is a hell, there's a punishment for, there's a punishment for sinners who don't repent. It's made clear that it's uh, eternal. Eternity is referred to a number of times. Um, it's clear that it's shared with the devils and with Satan himself. Right? It's clear that it involves, uh, involves anguish, the notion of, um, so the notion of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it seems, and some notion of fire is also clearly present in a whole lot of uh, in a whole lot of Christ's words. So there's dies and Lazarus, dies says uh, is I mean I can mean these flames, depart in the eternal flames, etc. etc. And there's same idea in the book of um, same idea in the book of Revelations. Uh, I should perhaps um, before going on to the talking about the justice of the hell deal with the current notion that was associated with the Swiss ex-Jesuit uh, Hans von Balthasar. Right? Quite a popular, unfortunately rather a popular thinker in contemporary Catholic circles. Von Balthasar, um, originally a Jesuit, became closely associated with uh, a woman called Adrienne von Speyer, who 
claim to be having mystical experiences and to be given special revelations from God. This is a very dubious claim because a lot of the content of her revelations can't really be reconciled with the teachings of the Church. So, for example, she says of the Trinity that the Son surpasses the Father's wildest expectations. And a lot of her revelations can, alleged revelations can also be linked to her kind of dubious psychological problems as well. But anyway, so von Balthasar takes up with this dubious woman, accepts her as an oracle, propounds a whole lot in very, I think she had money, right, during von Spar, publishes very lengthy works that are sort of supposed to be given a whole, getting a whole new picture in Catholic theology inspired by this woman's ravings, publishes at her expense because she has money. And one of the things that he talks about is the idea that hell is empty. So he says, okay, there's got to be a possibility of there being such a place as hell, but really no one really chooses to go there. So this is an increasingly distressingly popular idea amongst Catholics who wrongly think that von Balthasar is a respectable Catholic thinker. And of course, it's a relevant idea if you're talking about the justice of hell, because if no one is in hell, then really it's not very much, very much interest to talk about whether it would be just or not. Why it's wrong, okay, it's clearly stated that the devil is in hell in the scriptures, quite clearly stated that Judas is in hell as well. Judas seems to be the only named individual who's asserted to be in hell. So aside from him, it doesn't say that there are particular people in hell, but it also makes, Christ does make clear that hell isn't empty, that there are some people who are there and who are going to go there. The parable of the sheep and the goats, he doesn't say, I may put, if I don't repent, I'll put some people on my left hand and send them to hell. He says, I will send these people to hell. So the parable of the wheat and the tares, he doesn't say the angels will come and if there are any tares in the wheat, they'll burn them. He says the angels will harvest the wheat and they'll take the tares, the evil, and burn them. Same parable of the seed and the sower. It doesn't say that some of the seed may get choked by weeds or may get extinguished by the enemy. He says some of it will be. So quite clear, quite clear in the scriptures that von Balthasar is wrong. There will be some people in hell, some human beings in hell. And it's dangerous to think that he's right, because if you do think that it's right, that he's right, you really cut off the question of eternal salvation from all of human life and all the actions that people do in human life. So if, say, Hitler or Pol Pot or Stalin or Dennis Nilsen, the English serial killer who murdered people, or Fred West, who also loved torturing people to death, if, despite their incredible, total, utter evil throughout their whole lives, they still go to heaven, right? You say, oh, they just were sorry for it at the end. Then what we do in our lives can't really be seriously connected with our eternal fates, right? 
there's a real possibility that all these people who live totally evil lives um, are going to be saved at the end, then how can you, and not just some of them, but all of them, how can you seriously say that uh, what we do in our lives matters to our eternal faith? Okay. And of course, the big one, that's one of the big themes of the scriptures is that you have to worry, you have to watch. Christ is always warning people, watch. Okay. One of the big themes of the scriptures is that our salvation actually is in play. Uh, it's not a theoretical possibility that might not be, you don't, that may not be realized for anyone at all. It's a real possibility. Right? It's even what sort of what we're made for as we are, as fallen human, as fallen uh, men. We're made to be offered this alternative, either salvation or damnation. That's what the, the drama of our lives is about. Okay, so that's um, that's uh, that's uh, kind of an introductory introduction of the question of hell. Trying to give reasons to think to show that it matters because there's a real chance actually for all of us that we may go there, and there are lots of lots of people who will go there. So since there are lots of people who will go there. It's a big question, how can this be just? How can God punish people forever, right? For things that they've done in this life, no matter how uh, no matter how severe the things they do in this life are, still what they do in this life can only be fine, right? But hell is forever, it doesn't ever come to an end. So this is David Lewis's objection, and uh, it's a very strong one. I mean, what's well, a strong one? It's an obvious one, it's the first one that is going likely to occur to people. And not surprisingly, since it's an obvious one, uh, people have also tried to, or theologians have come up with answers to it. <coughs> They've even come up, with, come up with several answers. And the answers I'm going to talk about are the ones that are offered by St. Thomas Aquinas. He offers a bunch of answers. I'm going to focus in on the one that is the strongest. Right? Uh, some discussions by unbelievers of the answers that are offered to this objection um, actually pick out on what is really his weakest answer and isn't really his answer since he, since he doesn't thoroughly embrace it himself. Right? Uh, so there's if you look at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on the internet, which on the whole is a very is an excellent encyclopedia of philosophy, uh, look at the article on Heaven and Hell. The author says, "Well, what is the defense? What is the defense against this objection?" And he answers, "The defense is that um, a defense against God, who is because God is infinitely good, offending Him is an infinitely evil thing to do, and therefore deserves infinite punishment." So this is what the author, the author, the author of the encyclopedia article says, and then he says, oh, well, that's not really a good answer, good answer at all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, um, not only, it's, it, is, it is a somewhat deficient answer, uh, but its deficiencies have already been pointed out by St. Thomas. Right? In his work on commentary in the sentences of Peter Lombard, one of his big, long philosophy works, he says, well, this objection, this answer doesn't work very well because uh, you can't say that because of the God is infinite, offending him deserves an infinite punishment because creatures can't have, can't endure an infinite punishment anyways. And 
This argument applies to all sins whatsoever, because all sins whatsoever offend against God. But not all sins deserve infinite punishment. Only mortal sins deserve the punishment of hell. Venial sins, which are still offenses against God, just deserve a temporal punishment, which is what they get in this world or the next. So that's, I mean, St. Thomas gives this, God is infinite, so offending him deserves an infinite punishment. He gives this answer in some of his works, but not because he's convinced of it himself. You've got to remember that in the Middle Ages, people couldn't buy textbooks from the bookstore. What they did, what the students did, was they went and listened. So the works we have are pretty much what the master, the teacher, St. Thomas or St. Bonaventure or whoever, got up and said. And the students had to take notes or take it away in their heads. So what a teacher in those days had to do was to give every standard argument that could be offered. Sort of all the arguments that are sort of given by any authority. So the students would have a picture of the whole field of discussion. So what St. Thomas, because this was a traditional argument that he takes from Aristotle, St. Thomas gives it. But he also points out that it's not such a great answer. The answer that he does give, and that is a good one, it's the one I offered to these unbelieving philosophers, to total silence and consternation. As far as I can figure out, well, he gives several answers. The best one, I think, is one that he seems to have thought of himself. His answer is that because the damned are eternally sinning, due to their will being obstinately and permanently fixed in sin, they therefore eternally deserve punishment. It's not like their sinning ever stops. In hell, the will of the damned is always turned towards evil. That's why they're always willing and choosing. So their sinning never stops, and it's because their sinning never stops that their punishment never stops. So St. Thomas makes this clearer by saying that, finding out that if the damned in hell were ever to repent, they would be forgiven. He says, there will be no everlasting punishment of the souls of the damned if they are able to change their will for a better will. It would be unjust, indeed, if from the moment of their having a good will, their punishment would be everlasting. So he says, if they were able to change their will for the better, they wouldn't have an everlasting punishment. So really, you can describe God's will, sort of the will that God has to punish the damned, without any reference, without any explicit reference to eternity at all. You can just say that the will that punishes that is exercised in damnation consists in God's will to inflict punishment at some time on a damned person who is seriously sinning at that time. And this is something that is obviously just. You can't argue with the idea that it's just to punish someone at a given time for seriously sinning at that time. The notion of eternity, I mean, the fact that this punishment is eternal comes in not from God's justice, God's will to punish, but it comes from the fact, A, that the human beings are naturally immortal, the soul is immortal, and B, from the fact that the will to damn is fixed to be evil. Okay, so 
That's the essence of, that's St. Thomas' basic answer to this objection. Why is it not unjust to punish people permanently? It's that because the damned are sinning eternally, or they sin without end of time, right? Perhaps that's a better expression than eternally. Because they sin without end of time, therefore God punishes them without end of time. And I think we can say that's in itself a good answer, right? It's a good answer given that the damned are sort of have their will fixed in sin. It is perfectly just for God to, it's perfectly just for God to choose to punish them that way, punish them forever. So the problem, I mean, the crucial premise of this answer is the idea that the damned have their will fixed in evil. That would be what you might want to, where you might want to ask questions about this, about this, about this defense. And really, I guess you can divide this question into two. The first question is, how can the damned have their will fixed in evil at all? And the second is, how could they freely have their will fixed in evil? I mean, you might think that, on the assumption that it's not just having your will fixed in evil, but it has to be freely fixed in evil. There's only free actions that can be justly punished. And the answer to this question, in turn, arises from St. Thomas' understanding of voluntary action, what it is to do something voluntarily. It's an answer of a quite standard story originally he takes from Aristotle. And what he says is that an action is voluntary if you apprehend it as being good in some way. So apprehending as being good in some way means you either have a sensory or an emotional impression of its being good, or you might just believe that it belongs to, falls under some description of a good kind of action. But you don't have to believe or have the impression that it's good, all things considered. That's why we can freely do things that are bad freely do things that are evil. You only have to believe or have the impression that it's good in some respect. It has some sort of pull towards it. And the way a current philosopher, Donald Davidson, explains this is, here's the example of a can of paint. Suppose this was a can of paint. So Davidson said that there's no way he could just choose to drink a can of paint. And the reason is that he sees nothing good about drinking a can of paint. It wouldn't taste good. It wouldn't be nourishing. It would actually poison him. There's nothing that he, Donald Davidson, would see as good about drinking a can of paint. That means that he couldn't do it. There's nothing to attract him to it. I mean, you might think of aberrant people who have psychological problems or false beliefs about the health-giving properties of paint or some strange fetish who could choose to drink a can of paint, but he couldn't do it. He doesn't have any of those things. He doesn't believe there's anything good about it. He can't drink a can of paint. And St. Thomas thinks something more or less similar. He thinks there's got to be something that sort of attracts you. You've got to be sort of oriented towards things. You've got to want to do them in some way in order to do them at all. 
So he doesn't define freedom just, and this actually connects to what, doesn't define freedom just as what's called liberty of indifference, as having the simple power to do or not do some action. Okay. Uh, in the Davidson case, the fact that um, the fact that Davidson can't drink the can of paint, it's not a constraint on his will. Right? Uh, it's not like there's something that's sort of forcing him. He's, it's not like he's not free in not choosing the ju to drink the can of paint because there's something to motivate him to do it. Right? Uh, he's quite free in not choosing to drink it just because there's nothing appealing about it. Right? Because a free action is doing something because you want to do it. Okay, so this is what gives us the idea of the possibility of a will being freely fixed towards some kind of objective. Okay, the will will be freely fixed towards some kind of objective if that's the only thing that it uh, apprehends as being good. Right? Um, it does. I mean, you don't necessarily have to think of the thing as being good in every respect or the best possible thing that you can do, right? You might do one thing that's a bit less good than another thing as long as you think, as long as you think that it is somehow good, right? But um, as long as you think, as long as you sort of think of something as being good in some respect, um, you can do it. But if you don't see it as good as any way, as good in any way at all, you can't do it. John, when you say good, um, that would be a very subjective good, orientated to the person himself. Right? Well, it would be relative, right? Subjective is a bit of a slippery term because it, um, it somehow, like it somehow suggests what the person thinks is a, in a way that's detached from reality, right? Uh, it could be, it's relative, but in a way relative, but not subjective. So, I mean, eating a pile of sawdust would be not good for me, but it might would be good for a termite. Okay. So you have to, I mean, you can be mistaken in what you perceive as being good, right? But you have to sort of, that's the aspect in which, under which you have to, it has to strike you in order for you to be motivated to do it. On this view, explaining the situation of the band is pretty straightforward. Their wills are fixed in evil, because evil is the only thing they want to do, and their choice of evil is free because evil is what they want to do. I mean, there's a further theological consideration uh, in favor of their freedom. It's that everyone, in fact, is offered grace that enables them to be either saved or damned. Right? So that means that the damned, they want to do, not only do they sort of only want to do evil, but they're that way because they've chosen to be that way. They've rejected the grace that's offered to them that enables them to want something else, to want the good. So, you might ask, you might sort of ask, well, okay, how, how can this work? Uh, how can it actually be fixed in evil? If, Saint, as St. Thomas says, um, all action is done for the sake of some good. And the solution to this doubt comes in the fact that the uh, idea that an objective can be good in some respects, but not good to everything considered. So cannibal, cannibalism, for example. Uh, cannibalism, property done, might be tasty and nourishing. Okay, so in some respects, being nourished keeps you alive, that's good. Uh, it's even essential. So cannibalism can be good in some respects, it keeps you alive. 
But it can be bad, obviously, all things considered, because it's eating other human beings and doing an injury to them in that way. Uh, so what happens with the dam is that the kind of things that they, their will is oriented to are things that are good in some respect, but evil all things considered. Okay. That's the kind of way, that's kind of the way, those are the things which they sort of point at their will. That's the direction they sort of move towards. Right. And those are the only, and because those are the things they primarily want, um, that's what they're going to will, and that's what they can will. That's the only thing they can will through all eternity. Through all uh, eternity. So you can, <clears throat> this idea of uh, fixing the will towards evil, you can defend this possibility of what point out that there's, pointing out that there's cases where it's actually happened. Right? I mean, the clear cases are cases of extreme villainy. Uh, serial killers, for example, Fred West, the evil serial killer, killer in, uh, evil serial killer in, um, in Britain, uh, seems to have been someone whose will was totally oriented towards evil, who couldn't actually will to do the good, because uh, it's not something he ever wanted to do. What he wanted to do above all was what was evil. Uh, he couldn't want to do what was good. And another example is given by Joe Confess in his biography of Albert Speer. Well, Speer was uh, Hitler's minister of munitions in the sort of latter bit of the Second World War, a very successful minister of munitions, greatly raised the German war economy's production, uh, worked millions of slaves to death, right, in the service of his evil master. He managed to get out of being sentenced to death and was only sentenced to 10 years in jail in Spandau, in Berlin. So when he was a prisoner in Spandau, at the suggestion of the prison chaplain, he actually read thousands of pages of books on theology and moral philosophy concentrating on things to do with uh, sin and atonement and repentance. And rather to his embarrassment after he got out of prison, he confessed that he couldn't remember a single thing from any of them. And it wasn't because he was stupid. He was highly intelligent. He was a brilliant war minister. It was just that, uh, as Fess, his biographer, points out, he had no conscience. He had no conscience. Uh, so much so that he couldn't even take in these notions of sin and atonement and repentance. There was, they meant nothing to him. And so Spear is an example of someone who is in this case. Okay. So, that's, I think, the heart of St. Thomas's defense of, uh, St. Thomas's defense of, um, against this David Lewis objection, uh, how is it that God can punish people to, for hell eternally? It's because they're sinning. The damned are punished eternally because they sin eternally. Um, and they sin eternally because their evil is fixed, will is fixed in evil eternally. And that's a state that human beings can get themselves in, and that's a state that they got themselves in. <laughs> so that's the basic... Uh, that's the sort of the basic outline of um, outline of defense. I think you need to need to need to say a few more things if you take into account uh, 
a more detailed picture of what the doctrine of hell says. As you might say, there's this philosopher, Richard Swinburne, who does say, uh, okay, how did you come down? You sin so repeatedly that you totally destroy your character, right? Uh, It's because of really long uh, habitual sinning brings you to the state where you actually have no desires left to do anything good. But what... um, but this view doesn't really cohere with what the scriptures say. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments. One of them is about your desires. It says, thou shalt not covet. But most of them are about your actions. It says, don't do these particular actions. Don't, uh, don't, uh, commit adultery. Don't worship idols, etc., etc., etc. And you see this in Catholic teaching. It doesn't, it says that, um, it doesn't say that you're damned simply on account of having a totally bad, totally bad desires. Only desiring to be evil. It says you're damned for a single unrepented mortal sin. I just, I mean, this coheres with um, with what the Decalogue says, and it coheres with the scriptures. I mean, you have the passage in the scriptures um, says, "When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations." And he will separate the one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and put the goats at his left. He will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, Lord, when do we see the hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did our minister to thee? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in this passage, it's being said that people are being damned not for what they desire, but what for they, but for what they do. And quickly stated in the, succinctly stated in the book of Revelations, which says uh, the dead are judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. So, that's a scriptural idea. We're actually down for our deeds. And St. Thomas explicitly fits this in. When he's talking about, uh, because when he talks about sort of the fixity of the will, the will being fixed with evil, he doesn't do it in the first place when he talks about uh, damnation. He does it in the first place when he talks about mortal sin. He talks in the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is a sort of a big good source for this. Um, he talks about how if you're in a state of mortal sin, your will is fixed in evil because you can't you can't then will to do what's good. The only way you get out of a state of mortal sin is by um, is by a special grace. Okay. And the grace it's not uh, it's not sort of your responding to something out there. It's actually God specifically changing you, changing what you want and what you do, sort of giving you a new desire to do what's good that you didn't have before. So what happens, basically what happens in that case, we get the basic picture of what happens in damnation. Um, 
you're in a state of mortal sin. As soon as you do that at any time, right, you can't any longer will what's good. So what happens when you're damned is you're just left like that, right? While we're in this life, God is still giving us graces to repent. But sort of death is the end of the story. At the end of that story, you're just left as you are. Okay, it's not totally, it's not that God sort of makes you, it's not that you sort of become fixed in evil at the moment of death. What happens is that at the moment of death, if you're in a state of mortal sin, you're left as you are. So that's, okay, you might think, okay, well, this makes sense, this sort of seems logically consistent so far, right? Okay, you commit a single mortal sin, then you can't, you can't any longer will to do what's good. And at death, you just sort of get left in the state you are in the condition of mortal sin, right? And so the damned, they sort of continue in the state that they were in the state of mortal sin in this life, but it just sort of goes on forever because God doesn't give them graces any longer to repent. So you can say, okay, well, this is logically consistent, but why? Why is it that a single mortal sin, even if it's mortal, right? So, so you do something that's seriously wrong, uh, you full knowledge that it's wrong, that it's wrong, full consent of the will. Um, you do that mortal sin. Uh, how come that fixes your will incorrigibly against the good? How come? If you after this mortal sin, even if it's, even though you've done something that's really bad, really no fully knowing that it's really bad, really meaning it, how come after that uh, you can't change your mind and say, oh, okay, well, okay, when I did that, I wanted to do the evil, but now I want to do the good. And to understand this, I think we sort of need to understand what Saint Thomas has in mind by uh, the ultimate end of our life. Okay. So. We talk about, I'll give you one thing for the sake of another thing, uh, for some, uh, I don't know, you sort of uh, get, in, uh, get on the train to go to work, go to work to make money, uh, make money to, I don't know, make money to um, to live, etc., etc. You do one thing for the sake of another thing, but you just can't go on forever. Right? You've got to have some basic organizing goal for the sake of which you do other things. You do everything else. And St. Thomas's idea is that your basic organizing goal is a certain conception of a human life, right? You're not just sort of, human beings don't just sort of live for momentary satisfactions. They all know that they kind of have a basic, that they sort of have a human life to live, and they all sort of want to live some fundamental kind of human life, okay? And this conception of human life, uh, except sort of rules all their actions. They don't necessarily have it in mind every time they do something. You don't think, I, I sort of, I get on the train in order to make this contribution to, my, to this life, right? And uh, maybe it isn't even, maybe you do some things that aren't sort of directly for that purpose. But your conception of your, the life, what your life is supposed to be for, rules all your actions in the sense that you either do it for the sake of them or you make your actions somehow fit into it. Right? And if you don't make them fit into it, I mean, say you want to uh, 
say you want to succeed, but you're too lazy to get up in the morning or something. What's happening, what's happening there is some kind of compulsion and weakness of will, right? It's an infringement on your, on your, on your volition, not uh, something you're actually willing. So, St. Thomas sort of asks, or you can ask, what is it to have a life that actually has God and friendship with God as its end? And the answer is that because God is perfectly, infinitely good, hates all evil, a life that is going to take God and friendship with God as its end is going to have to be a life that totally rejects the evil, right? A life that is itself entirely devoted to uh, entirely devoted to the good. So, if you're willing to really do a mortal sin, really do something that's seriously evil, you know, it's, you're, you fully know it's evil, you fully will to do it, even though it's very seriously evil, um, willing that is incompatible with willing to have a life that's devoted to God. So what you do there is you're taking a life devoted to whatever it is that you're sinning for the sake of as your ultimate objective, right? You're not taking God as the ultimate objective of your life. So St. Thomas says, okay, well, that's what you do when you sin mortally. Your mortal sin is choosing some ultimate objective for your life uh, that's incompatible with God. And then he says, well, okay, well, how come you can't change your mind about it? Well, that's part of the notion of an ultimate objective. The ultimate objective is something for, which, for the sake of which you do all other things. Okay, so you've chosen. You've, when you sin really seriously, you've put something else ahead of God as your ultimate objective. Okay, you've pointed your will towards that as its fine, as its sort of final end, the ultimate thing you want for the sake of which you want other things. So you can't both want to do that serious evil and want to have God as the ultimate end of your life. But then he says, okay, well, you're doing that. That means you're kind of steering your will. You're choosing God, something other than God, as your ultimate end. And since it is ultimate, it's the ultimate thing that you want for the sake of which you do everything else, right? You can't then want something more than that, something in the place of that, because that's what it is to be ultimate. You pick what it is that, you all, that you're doing everything else for the sake of when you do this series of evil sins. So that's, I mean, that's his, uh, <clears throat> that's, I guess, his sort of his philosophical case for saying that, for saying that, um, for saying that when you do a serious mortal sin, you're actually moving your will towards away from God. You're deliberately choosing, implicitly choosing not to have Him as your ultimate end. You could have, a, you could make a theological point as well. You could say, okay, you're, when you do this mortal sin, you can only really want to, you can only do what's good. If you have sanctifying grace, when you sin morally, you reject sanctifying grace. And since grace is grace, you can't get it back of your own steam. Right? So he could do this kind of quicker theological argument, but he also tries to give the philosophical story too. I think because it helps you to understand sort of what's going on in sin and in human action. So that's his story about why a single ultimate mortal sin. Single, single mortal sin is really choosing, choosing to ultimately want something other than God. 
And the last thing, I guess the last thing you might want to ask is, okay, that's what happens. Uh, mortal sin, you talked about why mortal sins take you totally away from God. I mean, you can't want to uh, be pursuing him as your ultimate end. You can't switch your will of your own volition. You can only sort of rise from mortal sin through a special grace that alters what you want. But why Why is it all in the day? Why does it all end the day? Right? Why is death the point where God stops giving you grace? And there's two things you could say to that. One, I think, is that um, we have to stop sometime. Right? Uh, both is his justice and the whole idea of offering you a real choice between your final destination requires that he stop sometime. If he, if he just keeps on giving you grace until you give in, right, uh, no matter how long it takes, um, then he's not really offering you much of an ultimate choice about, uh, about your final salvation. And also, that kind of persisting story, that sort of persisting, uh, sort of persisting in grace forever, until you give in with no, or just forever without any stop. It's not really consistent with his justice. Because, I mean, after all, rejecting grace, rejecting this, uh, rejecting this choice of this opportunity of salvation is itself a sin. Right? And God's justice doesn't, isn't really constant with ignoring this sin of rejecting grace just forever until someone gives in. So, I mean, you have to stop. Sometime you might say, well, you can choose to do it at death, right? And, He has to stop sometime, and death would seem to be the appropriate time to choose it, because just because as human beings, we're animals, sort of, our human life on our human life is the one we live as living beings on this earth, right? That is sort of the life that's proper to us, uh, in which it's proper to our nature to, it's proper given human nature to decide what we are and what we want. And in fact, when we die. Right? It's not totally us that continues on. I mean, St. Thomas will say, like, my disembodied soul, I'm a man known as ego. My, my soul isn't me. Right? So our, in the full sense, what we come back to life when we're resurrected. Sort of our, our souls after death are sort of a part of us, the most important part of us, the best part of us, but they're not sort of the whole, they're not the whole person. Right? So since the whole person stops at death, uh, that's the end of the whole person prior to the resurrection. And it seems appropriate that at death, when the whole person stops to exist, um, that's when God just stops giving graces, right? Because that's, that's what the whole history of that person stops at death. And that's the history court by which they should be judged. And of course, you, um, the whole person comes to exist again at the resurrection, right? Uh, glorious resurrection for the saved, a horrible one for the damned. But the resurrection itself is just sort of a continuation of the story of, uh, is a result of the story of our sort of life on our, our, our peculiar human life, right? It's the result of our reward in the case of the saved, um, and, uh, and a punishment, a continuation of the saved in the case of the damned. So that's, I guess, the story about what I think St. Thomas's uh, defense is it's Jim Franklin, this Catholic philosopher, is commenting it. He calls it the stubbornness defense, right? You become the damned are damned because they're stubborn. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum apologetics lecture by Dr. John Lamont. 
For more Lumen Varium Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.